0: Are you interested in how to move and look forward to a better future after negative experiences? What do you think about resilience? How can we become more anti-fragile and creative for better futures? Stay tuned for answers from Michael Haley. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? That this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Michael Haley, the Smart Cities Program Manager at Christchurch City Council. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, Smart City as the R&D department, the use cases for AI, conflux of natural effects, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Michael Haley's interest in the use of technology and innovation to make improvements for business and the community has underpinned his work across both public and private sectors. He is focused on finding solutions and developing new ideas in partnership with the community that make a real impact in the city of Christchurch, its region Canterbury, and around the country of New Zealand. Christchurch is a leader in New Zealand innovation, and through the Christchurch City Council's Smart Christchurch program, Michael is excited to play a part in making Christchurch a better place to be. And with that, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time on the podcast. I highly appreciate your appearance. Let's jump right in. What does the future of cities mean to you?
1: I suppose the first thing that comes to mind is the importance of cities to humanity and the planet. 50% of human population is in urban areas. And we know, let's say in the next 20 years, that'll increase to 6 billion. So that's a lot of people in a relatively small amount of space. And you could argue that the future of humanity is dependent on the future of cities to a large degree. And I suppose thinking about the next 20 years and further afield, we're already, you know, we're faced with challenges that come from rapid growth in terms of maintaining the basic services that the community, you know, requires when they live in the city, managing infrastructure, both existing and kind of future infrastructure requirements, especially in a world where you have more people in less space with challenges like climate change, for example, which are creating issues that we haven't had to face previously housing's obviously a big concern i mean we're talking about you know the basic needs of human being having quality housing or safe housing i mean warm housing is kind of critical when we're thinking about the future of cities and then we want to be happy as individuals so when you think of future of cities is it existing at the the barest level or what's the quality of our life are we happy do we have fun do we enjoy living in our cities Carbon neutrality. Obviously, every city in the world, I'm guessing, has a goal of becoming carbon neutral by a certain time. For Christchurch, it's 2045. There's a lot of work to do before then, especially when you've got the demands that associated with urban growth, mobility. I suppose the other thing that I think about in terms of the future cities. I mean, I know a lot of cities, and I remember when I visited Melbourne, talking to locals there, reflecting on the rapid growth that has, but also the way. They got around the city and how much more difficult it had it got in a relatively short period of time we in Christchurch face you know that issue to a degree and we're thinking about shifting people out of cars into public transport how do we give options like better cycling experience and emerging technology kind of modes like east scooters case in point how do we manage that and make sure it works in that future city And then accessibility, we talk a lot about accessibility and that applies to the whole community because there's a lot of different accessibility barriers in terms of could be physical, it could be financial, it could be cultural. There are so many different factors to take into account when you're trying to create a city of the future that is welcoming to its citizens and people need to feel safe, need to be able to get around, but again, enjoy the surroundings. So thinking about Christchurch specifically, and the smart Christchurch program, when we think about the future of this city and the projects that we run and the initiatives that we look at, we try to look at four key areas. And ideally, when we look at new projects, we want to hit all four areas. So the first one for us is around resilient communities. So our city, our story since 2011 and 2010. Started off with a series of earthquakes that did a lot of damage to our city, changed it beyond recognition in some areas, and a lot of people died at those initial events too. So from that kind of traumatic kind of series of events, it set the tone for the next decade and a bit. So for us with them, we had a lot of floods after that because our city dropped half a meter, and we had a couple of wet winters, and we had a lot of inundation by flooding. A few years later, on the flip side of that, and thinking of climate change, we had our big fire here on the hills near our city. We'd never seen that happen. That was a major event in the city. And then lastly, four years ago, we had a major terrorist attack, which 51 people lost their lives. So there have been a series of events that have been very challenging for the city and have presented different types of challenges and required the city to be resilient and build resilience. And then lastly, of course, like everyone else, we had to get through COVID as well. So some of the challenges that we've faced have been quite unique to the city, and some have been global challenges. And the fire, even though it was a local event, is reflective of global changes happening to our climate. So when we think about our program and how the City Council and its partners kind of make a better city of the future, resilience is a big part of that. Second is around a livable city. We've talked about the need to enjoy the city that you live in. Life is to be enjoyed and your environment makes a big difference to that. So when we think about our projects and initiatives, we want to make sure that we're adding to the livability of the city, making it a better place to be. The next thing we look at is around healthy environment. So again, so if we take urban waterways as an example, since European colonization in Christchurch, which happened around 1850. Our waterways have been treated like drains and they're just channels to evacuate water from the city when it rains a lot or to take pollutants out or to take human waste out in past years. So there's a lot of work to do in our urban waterways to make them healthy again. So again, the community can enjoy them, but nature can reclaim its part too. So when we look at projects, that's an important part of what we do. And then lastly, we think about prosperous economy now this can you can look at this in any number of ways i suppose we do a lot of work with startups in christchurch because we've got local innovators local inventors who are coming up with you know world-first solutions and we think who if your local city council or your local organizations like councils and universities can not support the growth of startups then it's not a very good environment for them But also, you know, what are the things, the benefits that we can get right across the board in terms of resilience, livability, healthy environment? It doesn't mean that you can't have a prosperous economy. In parallel with that, we just need to, I suppose, relook at what we think prosperity is and think of that regenerative economic model, circular economic model that can mean that we have better outcomes for the city, but people can still make a living, startups become successful, and money flows through the economy.
0: It's amazing what you just described for Christchurch having these four fields to focus on the resilient community, the livable city, the healthy environment and economic growth and prosperity. You also had a very interesting snippet that you said that we can talk about the future of cities, but this is Christchurch future, what you just described. So in your understanding, although we can talk about general ideas, each city has their own future?
1: Yes, definitely, to a degree. And it's interesting, as you say, the challenges that are unique to Christchurch, I suppose, are like when you're cooking a dish. You may use the same ingredients in a different way. I suppose our story over the past 12 years is a series of events that probably no other city have had that combination, but they've had parts of that, and maybe more than one part but I suppose if you think of things like climate change, obviously it's a global existential challenge. And Christchurch, like a lot of cities, is near the sea. It's low line, it's in a swamp, which used to be a river delta. Now, I know a lot of global capitals are built in areas near water, whether it's a river or the sea, for reasons that are obvious, like trade and accessibility. But inadvertently, we, arguably, we've built some of our biggest cities in the worst places. And now with climate change, and I've described with the earthquakes, our land dropping by half a metre, that effectively gave us 100 years of sea level rise in 45 seconds, which is a big challenge. And like a lot of cities, our groundwater is going up, coastal intrusions happening more, and we're struggling with increased intensity of rain events. Is our story unique? Yes, to a degree. Is it similar to a lot of cities around the world? Yes, it is as well. Just slightly different factors fitting into it.
0: What does resilience mean to you and your community?
1: It means a lot of things. I suppose on a daily level, it's coping with the challenges thrown at you every day, whether it's weather, traffic, managing sickness, managing economic stresses. So there's just the general resilience you need for day-to-day life. And that can vary from time of year, or the things happening in your life and things happening in the city life. Taking it up a level, I suppose, I mean, we talked about some of those kind of big events that have happened to us and obviously COVID that happened to all of us. And these are those bigger things often out of our control that happen to us, our community, our city, earthquakes, case in point, you get no notice about that. It just happens out of nowhere. Scientifically, it doesn't happen out of nowhere. But on a human timescale, you can have in Christchurch decades, if over 100 years of relatively No activity, and then something very big happens, and then it happens again and again, and then it stops happening. So I think with acts of nature like that, there's a randomness that is very challenging to the community, not knowing that it's going to happen, but also thinking, why us? It feels very localized. Other things like the fire, for example, that was lit by a human being, it was arson. It was a very dry summer and exceptionally dry for that time of year, which reflects climate change. And uh, there had been a lot of growth in the spring season, so there was a lot of fuel. So it was a combination of events. But I suppose when you have an event that is ultimately started by a human being, it, it feels quite different than an act of nature. Acts of nature don't feel personal. It's the universe, it's the earth, it's you know, it's tectonic forces that have been happening for billions of years. But when a human being lights a fire and people get hurt or die and properties get burnt and native forest gets wiped out, it's a different matter. And I suppose the extreme version of that was with the terror shootings four years ago. Obviously, that was a very personal thing. One person initiated that and it was massive impact ongoing to our community. So I think resilience can take a lot of different shapes and the nature of the challenges can feel more personal than others. So I think in general, though, it's the ability to get through the short term, the medium term, the longer term and actually build a hopeful picture for the future. I today met with our mayor and we gave him a tour of our University of Canterbury, which has been rebuilt since the earthquakes, a huge amount of investment. And now 12 years after those earthquakes, we've got the most successful role in the country. It's the place to be for tertiary students. The city reflects that too. We've had a lot of investment, a lot of work done. And now we're getting visitors, we're getting people coming to live here. We're getting investment both nationally and internationally as a result of the investment. In the intervening 12 years, there has been a lot of hard graft. But resilience ultimately, on a longer term basis, is the ability to have hope and create a hopeful vision and then ultimately execute the vision. And as you go along that path, and the rebuild has been a long path, there's been other challenges coming from the side. So it's the ability to keep going and manage those new challenges. And I suppose going forward, as I said, we talked about climate change, but even maintaining our existing levels of infrastructure, managing people's trust in government, thinking of the anxiety, hopefulness and the distrust in the community. There's so many elements to resilience, but at its core, it's the ability to get up every day and keep on doing what you're doing, but with a vision.
0: Have you heard of Nassim Nicholas Taleb? No. He wrote several books about resilience and risk and chance. For example, he wrote The Black Swan, The Fooled by Randomness, and The Anti-Fragility*. These are all concepts about how we are not really understanding what's happening to us and what's happening in the future, because we really think that the past will continue. I think you would enjoy anti fragility a lot because it talks about how we need to create systems which are not just robust enough to survive current shocks, but also learn from them and become stronger for those shocks. We have a summary of anti fragility in episode 20. So that could be a short summary. Now, I know that smartness is a huge thing for Christchurch and for you. What does smart city mean to you?
1: It means a lot of things. And I often think when people ask what our function or what smart cities mean does, like in a local government context, the easiest way I find to describe it is like the R&D department of a city, because we look at new and innovative ways to fix problems or adapt to problems and opportunities and it's probably the simplest way to describe it but i think as well as helping i suppose fix issues for the community and within your organization we have found over the past few years increasingly we think about regional and strategic opportunities that we can achieve with our partners so i suppose if you look at greenhouse gas reduction as a good example a council could look at reducing that on its own, or I could think, okay, what about the electricity lines companies? What about infrastructure owners? What about regional partners? What about our neighboring councils? What about the government? So I think smart cities are ones that are open to opportunity, open to new ideas, open to taking risks, but also open to collaboration. I think that is probably, arguably, the most important factor that we can put, let's say, differences aside or egos aside or maybe, you know, traditional boundaries and actually work together on bigger issues and opportunities together collaboratively. use the word a lot, but in a symbiotic fashion and the partnership could be two councils, could be with the university, could be with business. But I think the key thing is to go and look for those common issues and opportunities, first of all, but then looking at having positive outcomes for all partners in the collaboration. And again, at a high level, that sounds nice and easy. But of course, collaboration is one of the hardest things to do, especially when it's across different organizations, different parties, different parts of a country or the world. So collaboration for us is arguably the hardest part of what we do, but is the most rewarding when you do get those positive outcomes.
0: So we talked a lot about challenges. What are your three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities?
1: There's a lot. And one of the challenges with growing older is the accumulation of knowledge and life experiences. You realize there are a lot of things that can kill you or challenge you. Or as a city, that can present really serious situations for us. And when you work in an organization that helps run your city, there's a lot of things to worry about. But I suppose, top of mind, we, we've talked about it, and this is not a unique answer, but probably climate change is the biggest one. As you say, locally, for the reasons I explained, we've got a lot of challenges, and we're going to have to retreat from the coast. We're going to have to think where we develop, and we're going to think about managing things like stormwater and those rain events. How can we manage it in a sustainable way? For example, we're having discussion today, like, do you try to get water out to sea as quickly as possible? As the sea rises and as your groundwater rises, that gets harder and harder. Or do you actually look at ways of storing the water and reusing it locally? So do you think instead of building a bigger pipe to the sea, do you build storage capacity in people's back gardens or for apartment blocks? And that way people take pressure off the infrastructure down the line, but also then people can use it to water their gardens, filter it, drink it ultimately. But I suppose that's a fundamental shift in the way we look at, let's say, traditional infrastructure. In the case of stormwater, we know we're going to have more water in a shorter period of time. Do you invest in traditional infrastructure or do you actually put it on its head and think from a circular economy perspective, why not use the resource that nature has given you? in a positive way and do it in a smart way so people don't have flooded houses and can still operate in the rain events we know are happening and will continue to happen. The second one, probably building on that, I think one of the concerns is the infrastructure model that predominantly, well, started in the 19th century and the 20th century has really kind of consolidated it, is centralized infrastructure models. So for example, we talk about stormwater, but wastewater as well in our city. For the majority of houses, we take wastewater and we pipe it sometimes tens of kilometers down a hill or an incline to a central point, we treat it, and then we put it out to sea. That is problematic for a few different reasons. So if we start with that centralized point where you treat it, in our city, and a lot of cities, that is beside the sea. So it's very prone to you know storm events. Obviously, tsunamis is another thing we've got to worry about in New Zealand. And then thinking about it when we did have earthquakes and when we have future earthquakes, the pipe network was severely damaged. Not all around the city, but enough in the parts that fed the central treatment plant. So even though all of the pipe network wasn't damaged, the key centralised part of it was which presented issues for the whole city. And then lastly, when we're treating that water, we're pushing it out to sea instead of thinking about, again, this is a resource that we could reuse. So I think thinking about how we can move from a traditional centralized infrastructure model, whether it's for electricity, water, and see what we can do in terms of local capability. So I'm a real believer in developing a local modular approach to electricity is an easy one to bring up. A lot of people are investing in solar businesses and residential properties. And that whole electricity infrastructure, we're rethinking about how that operates in terms of it's a two-way system. So I think we could take those principles and apply it to wastewater. Why can't we treat wastewater even at a suburban level or even a city block level or even in a property level? So we can think about how to treat it more sustainably, reuse the outputs and also make us more resilient in these storm events or the earthquakes or the tsunamis. It makes the city as a whole more resilient in a mesh approach to infrastructure. So I think we can't afford, number one, to continue to do infrastructure the way we can financially. Number two, it's not that smart. And it's a 19th century philosophy, which is take waste and get it away from you as quickly as possible. Why not do that locally, but actually think of it as a resource that can be reused and can be treated in a way that we get byproducts so you could treat wastewater with algae And using photosynthesis and get fertilizer for gardens or rural applications. So I suppose the last one then, and we kind of touched upon it, is just in terms of our community, in terms of mental well-being. We're noticing with youth, there's a lot of anxiety around climate change in particular, but just democracy in general and distrust seems to be growing too. So for us, I think there's a bit of cognitive dissonance in youth, especially. Because politicians who generally are of a different generation and don't necessarily fl- reflect you are talking about the importance of, let's say, greenhouse gas reductions. But at the same time, they're supporting investment in expanding an airport or building new highways that require lots of concrete steel and are actually emitting way more emissions than mitigating. So I suppose our communities looking at politicians and decision makers and people in you know, city organisations. They're hearing one thing, but they're seeing another. And I think to help with that, we need to make sure that our actions match our ambitions. So if our stated ambition is to become carbon neutral, then we better get on with that and make sure that our actions and our strategies reflect that. And I think we seem to be a bit of a juncture in terms of, well, certainly within New Zealand, but probably globally, in terms of moving from that antiquated model to a future model, but we seem to think we can have our cake and eat it. In terms of having neutrality, but still having a traditional growth model that involves lots of concrete, steel, international travel, tourism, you know, having steak every night of the week. Humanity seems to have reached a juncture where we have to make some smart decisions, but actually change the way we live. Now, I don't think we need to do that in a way that makes life worse. Ideally, it will make life better. The example of taking your bike to work versus sitting in a traffic jam for half an hour being one. I cycle the wick, as I pass a traffic jam, I'm feeling pretty good about life, you know? So I suppose we just need to kind of paint that picture and accept the sacrifices need to be made, but new opportunities come out of those sacrifices. And of course, humanity has been adapting over millions of years now, and we constantly change the way that we live and operate. But I suppose we're facing a juncture where if we don't change very quickly and change our mode of existence, then we will cease to exist in the way that we used to anyway, and at the scale we used to.
0: It's amazing that although you are talking about the concerns and fears and challenges, you are already moving ahead and talking about how we can tackle them, what are the opportunities in those challenges. I just love that. That's amazing. You had a very interesting statement that because of climate change and the rising sea levels, you will need to vacate the coasts. So you think that that's the solution for the rising sea levels and cities
1: being on the coasts? It's one option. I suppose thinking about, let's say, the local journey again, as I said, we've got ambitions to reduce our greenhouse gas outputs. But I think previously we had a bit of a conflict between the adaptation camp in terms of saying what do we need to do in terms of, let's say, coastal retreat versus the mitigation. And I think one positive thing is that the conversations have joined up. We accept we need action to obviously reduce the root cause of this massive issue. But at the same time, we've got to get on with the adaptation phase. But it's a pretty hard conversation to have. I mean, for us locally, when we change, let's say some of the zoning information to reflect the fact that parts of our city would be pretty challenging to live in in future decades, there was a massive pushback from our community because the value of their properties dropped instantly. And their lifestyle, they liked being near the sea. They went surfing. They took their dog for a walk. They loved being close to nature. They felt, you know, at a fundamental level, their lifestyle choices were being challenged. So it's a very personal conversation to have because for a lot of a community, a house might be your biggest asset. The place that you live may define you as a person. If I'm a surfer, for example, or like I'm fishing at the end of every day. And From a practical point of view, to retreat from the coast is going to cost a lot of money. So if you want to support people through that process, you're going to have to support them financially to rebuild, hopefully sustainably, in an area that's better suited to human habitation. So we are starting to have those conversations. And parts of New Zealand, the conversation needs to happen right now because the storm events are happening, the damage. Some parts of the country are getting flooded multiple occasions every year. So the, we are having that conversation as a country and locally, but it's a pretty tough one. In terms of we were talking today about the Netherlands, for example, Now the Netherlands is the same size as Canterbury, which is the region Christchurch is part of. And it has, I think, 70 million people in an area where we have probably under a million people. It's below sea level. So I suppose there are examples of countries like the Netherlands that have adapted to being lower than the sea, and still having a lot of people in intensification, but still having a positive quality of life. And I've been to Amsterdam. And I think it's a beautiful city. And it seems to have positive qualities in terms of the amount of cycling and culture. And I can imagine being a great place to live. So there are parts of the world that have had to deal with sea level ingress. And they've done it successfully. But I don't know if that is an option for us. So there's a lot of unknowns, but I think retreat has to be part of the solution and maybe engineering could be part of it too. But for cities that don't have density of population, it's a two-way sword. I mean, you can have much better quality of life and more space, but you can't necessarily afford to invest in massive engineering projects like building a seawall, for example, as a simplistic example, or even light rail. We struggle with getting support and investment for core infrastructure because we don't have the density of population. So it's a funny problem to have. So, what can we afford to do is just naturally part of that. So, maybe retreat is the better option in some areas. But hopefully, there may be engineering. I mean, we've invested a lot in stormwater basins and stormwater engineering to help with some of the issues that have kind of been exacerbated by the earthquake and the dropping of the land. And they've worked to a degree. But I suppose I don't think engineering solutions and concrete seawalls are the future necessarily. But maybe there are in other parts of the world because the Netherlands have proved what you can do with engineering and ingenuity. So it'll be interesting to see how different parts of the world cope with that.
0: That's why I asked, because, for example, the Netherlands doesn't have the space to retreat from the coast (laughs) so they have to solve this problem in their place
1: that's really insightful and we do have a lot of space here but for example the closer you go to the big mountains the closer you are to the main fault lines so in new zealand there's so many different threat types especially things like tsunami and magnitude 8 earthquakes It feels like we've got quite a few existential threats that we've got to kind of manage as a whole and do it smartly. But I suppose you don't want to create a worse situation by reacting to one in isolation or vice versa. So we're trying to think as a region, but using things like digital twins, how can you take all these factors, threats or opportunities and then simulate outcomes? So when you think about where people live as a really basic example, If you can think about those different hazards and challenges and look at them holistically and run different simulations on depending on a whole bunch of possible scenarios and then make really good decisions, I think that's going to be a big thing for, as you say, any region because we've all got different options, we've got different combination of threats. So our solution, as you say, may well be different from a Singapore, Netherlands, New York.
0: So if we are at a junction in our evolution, what are the opportunities you see for the future of cities?
1: I suppose the big thing, and hopefully what I've discussed today hasn't been too negative, but I suppose we talked about resilience and ultimately what does it mean? It means, And we talked about getting out of bed in the morning with a sense of hope and purpose and doing it all again. And that's something about the you know, humanity. That's a quality of ours. We can keep on getting up out of bed and giving another go. So I suppose with stress, challenge, and the criticality of the current situation, it does, on the flip side, create a situation where we can be creative, we can be transformative, and also the pressures that we face force us to innovate and collaborate. So I think it does create an environment where we can actually make enormous leaps as a species if we want to. So thinking about, I suppose, different areas where the opportunities lie, I mean, obviously, AI is a very hot topic at the moment with chat GPT and the advances being made. And, you know, there's many different camps in terms of the positive and negative parts of that. But from a city point of view, I suppose, first of all, I mean, there's so much data and information in our cities, and we are struggling as a race to actually comprehend that and intellectually even get our heads around it. And I talked about Looking at complex scenarios that have multiple factors to consider, I think cities generally have looked at things in isolation. So we're going to simulate sea level rise, for example, and you have a basic line of where the water is over your static city. Now, you don't take into other accounts like urban intensification or let's say ground composition or even the water table. So There's a lot of factors even with looking at that sort of modeling that are quite complex that we struggle with. So, I think AI will give us the ability to take that massive data that you get from across the city and put it together and simulate outcomes in a much smarter way that we haven't been able to do previously, which again may give us the ability to take some great leaps and come up with some really innovative solutions to the challenges we face. Process automation, again, thinking from a city authority's point of view, we have a lot of people spending a lot of time on pretty dumb stuff, to be frank whether it's telling someone on the phone for the 50th time when the dog registration is due, or what your rates balance is, or even telling you how high your new building can be. There's a lot of information and legislation that city authorities are, I suppose, custodians of, and we have a lot of staff translating that information to business, to community, to the world around us. So I think from a process point of view and also an information dispersal point of view, there's a lot of opportunities there in terms of using AI to help do that. So then people are freed up to have really the value-add conversations or do the value-add activities. We talked about simulations. Again, when you've got all of these data sets and the different variables, different threats and opportunities, simulations are going to be huge in terms of even making basic decisions about I don't know what level of road needs to be, but when you think of a whole region as a holistic system, how does something happen in one corner, affect the other, and so on and so forth. So I think with our regional collaboration, simulations will really help too. Moving on again, AI will really help with infrastructure planning. I do feel that we have different infrastructure owners like your roading people and your water people and your facilities people making decisions and plans in isolation. And that presents a lot of issues in terms of almost different parts of a city's functions competing against each other for funding and resourcing, whereas again, by simulations gives the ability to look at things holistically and make the right decisions as well, and also invest in the right parts and regions, thinking about what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30 years. Land use optimization is another big thing around AI. I mean, we have a lot of conversation here about rural activities. So dairy farming has really expanded in New Zealand over 20 years with irrigation. There's a few different issues at play. The irrigation is drawing water away from natural waterways, which creates a whole bunch of issues there. The dairy activity is putting nitrates from the cows, from the urine waste into our water aquifers. So, the water supply for people is effectively getting poisoned by those activities. So, we've talked a lot about helping rural industries with land use optimization. So, if we know current practices aren't sustainable, they're having adverse effects on our environment which are going to have bigger issues that overwhelm us eventually. How can we help industry to actually model different land uses? So, how transition those farming practices to a more sustainable model that's better for our environment but still, from an economic prosperity point of view, they can model whether they can still make money. But that's joining up a conversation between different parties that isn't happening currently. But AI can help industry kind of have a view of what they need to do in the future to still make money, but actually have better social and environmental outcomes. And then for us, again, AI is huge with earthquake protection in terms of helping us build more resilient buildings to make sure people don't risk, a case scenario, die through an event. That can help us design the city better to be more resilient so it's a big thing here and i know in other parts of the world it can either be a big threat or a challenge or no challenge at all so when we talk about earthquakes some people will just blank out because it can never happen to them and other parts of the world are very interested in what's happening in that space we talked about sustainable infrastructure i can't say enough how much i think that is part of the future and Taking the, I suppose, those principles of a circular economy and applying it to city infrastructure, I think there's so many opportunities that we can achieve. But again, we've got to think about things differently. But I think by simulating outcomes, let's say you could simulate the impact of giving every household a rainwater tank, what that would have on flooding, but also water use through summer and drought. I think we can kind of use data and simulations to help progress those conversations too. And show that from a financial point of view, having modular and circular approaches to infrastructure management can be really good from a bottom line point of view too, as well as those environmental outcomes. And then we talked about the distrust and hopelessness felt in some parts of our community. But I suppose the other side of it is In modern cities in a large part of the world, we've never had a more open society in terms of being open to different ways of living and people from different parts of the world and even reflecting on our journey in terms of where we've come in the last 20 years. We've come from a very monocultural background to a multicultural, exciting, vibrant, but very accepting of people's differences and embracing and celebrating it. So I think that's a really positive thing in terms of quality. There's probably been a never better time in human history. So that's a positive thing. So for all the negative things, there's never been a better time to express yourself as you want to. So that's got to be something that we celebrate and build on.
0: It is really interesting, your description on AI, because as you mentioned, some highlight AI as... A threat. But what I understood from your description is that you think AI is more of a tool for us humans to go beyond the repetitive, boring tasks to concentrate more on the creative and innovative stuff we can.
1: There's no guarantee that that will be the outcome. But if we manage things well, that would be the outcome. It frees us up in the way that I suppose in the past technology has freed up humans, like even. A washing machine, it was pretty laborious to do a washing before we had automatic washing machines. So maybe AI will do that on steroids. But some of, I suppose, the things we've been thinking about, the challenges with AI and thinking chat GPT, for example. Let's say if I was looking up information relating to our district planning code. As a city, we don't know the validity or the trustworthiness of the source data. And also the other thing is AI doesn't know it's wrong. So it is 100% certain, and the answer it gives you, and there's no self-doubt, which can be dangerous in certain scenarios. So if, for example, you're asking it to diagnose a spot on your skin, that could be life or death, or if it had biases built into it, it could, for example, if you're asking who you should vote for, or if immigration is a good thing or a bad thing. There's a lot of inbuilt biases that can come to the surface and reference sources that not necessarily be trustworthy. So I know a lot of people have been talking about building a sense of morality or to have a moral compass within your uh, model to take values that reflect values in the community you live in. I heard one woman who had worked on these models in her time with Google, who now lives in Hawaii, refer to using the values of the indigenous people, first nation people of those countries. And so she was talking in Maui. Those reflected the holistic nature of the world we live in and how things have a circular effect, positive and negative, and putting some of those values into AI how do we as you say build in the frameworks of the filters that we as humans have and also how do we potentially curate sources of information too so they are trusted and can't be manipulated and then lastly when is it useful to use ai and sometimes it may be entirely be the opposite or have detrimental effects whether it's spreading hate speech furthering biases that don't lead to positive outcomes so I'd like to think as a optimist that the opportunity it's going to present will be overall positive, but we've just got to manage some of those negative parts too. And then, of course, as a science fiction nerd, I have watched all of the Terminator movies and any other number of apocalyptic, dystopian, sci-fi idioms. And we know there is that bigger threat of AI managing to coexist with humanity long term potentially as well. So that is something as well that we've got to manage.
0: Do you have a good recommendation on not dystopian future with AI? Because what comes to mind is Black Mirror or The Terminator or whatever. These are all very dystopian ones. And I'm just curious whether you have any pop culture reference which can be easily used as a good example, which towards we need to strive for instead of just losing our mind that AI is going and it will be a malevolent overlord and we will be perished and I don't know. Are there good examples in pop culture that you think are positive in this (laughs) way?
1: Well, there's not many. Wally? (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) But I, I used to read a series of books by an author called Ian M. Banks, and he had a series of science fiction novels that were based around the culture. And in that model, there was AI who had long since gone beyond humanity, but it was a benevolent AI. So it had humans to exist almost like pets, but had a a positive guardianship over them. But still, in that model, they were humanity became, I suppose, second to AI. I don't think there are a lot of references, probably for good reasons, because we like our entertainment to be in that dystopian because it's more dramatic. It creates tension. And it also creates situations where humans have to rail against a different authority or struggle to continue to exist. For whatever reason, we love watching things about apocalyptic situations where not many humans are left and they have to struggle against the forces, whether it's AI, zombies or whatever the case may be. So for whatever reason, we fantasize about things like this. A dystopian AI feature feeds into that very nicely. I hope it doesn't go that way, but time will tell. <laughs>
0: I'm just asking this because the majority of our sceneries, our pictures about the future is dystopian. And that just creates fear in people about the future of cities. And that doesn't help at all to talk and think and work for the better future.
1: Exactly. And I think people who work in spaces like we do, I think you do have to be optimistic by nature. Otherwise, there's a lot of things and rabbit holes you could disappear down. So optimists are key to a better future. (laughs) If Mm. you don't believe there is going to be a better future, then it's pretty hard to create it.
0: And I'm not saying that these dystopian futures don't teach us anything. It's just, come on, we can do better.
1: (laughs) Yes. We need a positive. Come on, Netflix. You can do better.
0: (laughs) Yes. My last three questions is what are the three biggest strengths regarding the future of cities for you?
1: Well, I mean, we've talked about challenges and challenging situations, creating a desire to innovate and to collaborate. So I think the innovative mindset that is emerging in modern cities is something that's a real strength. And it's a base human strength, but with challenging environments, does seem to bring out the best in terms of innovation and creativity from human beings. So I'm hoping as things become more challenging, we'll become more innovative and we actually start making some great leaps, I think. As well as being extraordinarily innovative in some circumstances, I think we're also innately lazy in terms of if things are good, we've got enough food, enough water, enough money, enough stuff, enough holidays overseas, then we're quite happy with the status quo. Now, I think the status quo is changing in terms of people being affected by storm events and other issues relating to the way that we've treated the planet. Like I mentioned, nitrates into your drinking water due to too much dairy activity. So I think people are starting to realize the status quo is not possible to maintain and that is an important thing for then people to accept change as necessary and then embrace it and try to make the best out of the situation we've created and then adapt to a different sort of future the second thing and we've talked about it quite a lot and i mean i've talked about 13 years of situations in christchurch that have forced us to build our resilience each of those events were very tough but today as a city, as a community, we are more resilient than we were 12, 13 years ago. That's a fact. It hasn't been easy, but we've built resilience. And I think thinking about every city has good times and bad times and everything in between, just like every human being has good years and bad years. And I think if we look at cities that maybe have had a lot of challenges recently on top of COVID, whether it's natural disasters or climate related issues, And to see how they've adapted and how they've coped with it, we can then learn in advance of those challenges coming closer to us. So let's say if it's wildfires, we know even in colder and damper parts of the world, that's going to be a reality of the future. So look to parts of the world that have dealt with that threat already and then try to adapt and get ready for those things we know are going to happen. And I think the other thing in terms of modern cities is the increasing hunger to collaborate. So again, part of the stresses that we're facing, it pushes us to collaborate because we realize we cannot achieve these outcomes on our own as an individual, as a group of communities, as a bunch of city authorities or business. I think we're increasingly realizing and thinking of a region or a city as a system of interconnected and interrelated activities and factors and environments. And I think increasingly people are realizing if we want to make real change, we have to do it together. And barriers that we've put up for whatever reason previously are hopefully starting to come down. We'll continue to do so. So I'm hopeful we'll become more innovative. We will embrace resilience and learn from each other in terms of how to adapt. And then lastly, we're going to collaborate more authentically and achieve great things through that collaboration.
0: In my architectural education, there was the usual notion before we had to submit our assessment that. The last-minute panic is the best time to create something. (laughs) Yes. Are you sure that we are at that stage, that everybody recognizes that the status quo is not maintainable anymore and we need to collaborate, we need to innovate, we need to be better?
1: I don't think there's a universal understanding of the severity of the situation. And I think there is a large part of the population who intellectually grasp some of these existential threats But haven't translated that into change yet, are the realization of the impacts that it's going to have on their existence. So I think we're still transitioning. And I don't know, as you say, if it's got to that stage one hour before your essay is due. I'm not sure if we're in that last hour, but I mean, we know that time's running out pretty quickly. But I think we talked about some of the distrust in our community coming from the cognitive dissonance when what you hear doesn't align to what you see happening. So I still think we've got a a long way to go in terms of that journey, but I don't know how much runway we've got and how much time. And here, like a lot of parts of the world, you've got that cycle of government changes, council changes, and that shift from centre-right to centre-left. And I still feel some of, let's say, the more progressive work or the innovative work tends to go forward in spirits and then go backwards, depending on change of government or change of leaders. And it still stops start. And again, how much runway have we got before we run out of time? I'm hopeful that people are starting to realise that the way we live has to change. And it can be a positive journey, but I don't think there'll ever be universal agreement on that. But hopefully we've got enough critical mass to start making some positive change.
0: You have mentioned some steps governments could take. Who is responsible for establishing the future
1: of cities? That's a really good question. I suppose the easy answer would be all of us at the end of the day, because we talked about some of the hopelessness in our community, but we've got to empower people to make changes in their life that have positive effects on on the whole. So all of us, in terms of members of our communities that we live in, we've got a responsibility, first of all, to look at what we do and make positive changes and be aware of our actions and the impacts it has on our environment and our city. Taking up a level, our elected members should reflect the community that voted them in. There's a real responsibility for them to think about their constituents, but also future generations as well. So again, there's a responsibility there to take action and actually think beyond the end of their term and think of what are the things we need to do for the greater good. Try to think about longer time periods. And then organizations like councils, for example, have a real balancing act. I mean, we're trying to, especially now, I mean, a lot of parts of the world are struggling with record high inflation and cost of living crises. We've got a situation where we need to invest in the future of cities and do it in a smart way and make sure we're resilient to all the things we talked about. But that costs money too. And this is where the cognitive dissonance sometimes comes in, in terms of you're saying you want to achieve this outcome, but you're not willing to spend money or resource it. So the reality of the situation, the changes we need to make will cost money and will need resource put into it. So either we divert resource and money from activities that aren't necessarily sustainable or else we invest more. So that's a pretty tough thing for authorities and governments to balance too, because they have a responsibility not to tax or rate their community too much. So again, it's another balance. And then industry, when we talked about that issue with nitrates and just pollution in general and intensification of development. So industry well and truly has a part to play, but I think the key is for local governments or a government to work closer and to work collaboratively with industry. So again, we can achieve some good symbiotic outcomes. And as you say, sustainable farming practices, for example, doesn't have to come at the cost of jobs or profit. If we do things the right way, we can still be economically successful, whatever that means in a future environment but also and we can have better outcomes for people and the environment.
0: Michael, you have been very generous with your time. My before last question is, what is your role in establishing the future of cities?
1: In the Smart Crisis Program, it's a smart cities, smart communities function. Talked about being the R&D department. I think another thing we can do is offer a living laboratory to inventors and startups and people doing really smart things. So cities have an opportunity to bring the smartest people in their community into conversation and then co-develop solutions for the future. So for example, we're testing an eco-reactor at the moment at the headwaters of the river that goes through our city and it uses microbes to treat the water and take out phosphates and heavy metals and nitrates. Now, when we first met the inventor of that solution, they were working out of a lab and they were drumming up interest. But luckily, we've got a function and some funding available to support projects like that, developed by local innovators. And that has multiple positive impacts. It shows the community that we're willing to be innovative to tackle river quality. It supports someone with a really good idea who's trying to do the right thing for the environment you know, and the country. And from a reputational point of view, it shows that we as a city are innovative, supportive, we take risks, we're serious about the challenges that we face as a community. So I think smart cities and smart community functions, be the R&D department, take risks, be a living laboratory. You might not always get it right, but if you are open about learning from things that don't go well, you can have much longer term, you'll have much more positive outcomes. As I said as well, I think increasingly we started trialing bits of IoT up a pole or creating widgets ourselves. I think as we've matured, we've realized it's less about technology. Technology is an enabler. It's all about people, community, environment. But you don't have to be the person doing the innovation. Sometimes the best innovation happens from being a matchmaker or joining the dots. So I think a lot of what we do nowadays is relationship building and having a strong innovation ecosystem where industry, learning facilities, government can all kind of work together on shared problems and do some really cool stuff. And I think lastly, in terms of our role, it's really important for us to prepare the community for the future. We've got a responsibility to look ahead, think about the challenges and the options we talked about today, and actually start socializing our community with these things, but also start thinking about some solutions and approaches, positive ways forward, so that when something happens, we're prepared for it. Again, I talked about earthquakes that could happen tomorrow, could happen in 100 years, but I suppose the main thing is we know it's going to happen. Are we going to be ready for it? the storm events, wildfires, the things that are going to increase in the future, we know they're going to happen. And we're not sure if it's going to be tomorrow in 10 years time, but we've got to be ready. So we've got a job to get the community ready for the future.
0: Mike, thank you so much for your work and your time on the podcast. I really appreciate how willing were you to share your answers and your experiences.
1: Thank you very much for the chance to be part of your podcast.
0: My pleasure. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience?
1: I suppose the first thing, if anything, we've talked about today is of interest and you want to learn more about Christchurch or the program or the things we're working on, just reach out to us via LinkedIn. Just look me up or email smartchristchurch at ccc.govt.nz. Second thing would be keep an open mind. We've talked about a lot of things today, but I suppose one common theme is when you've got challenging situations or the challenges of running a city, just keep an open mind. Just because we've done things one way for a long time doesn't mean it's the right way or that we don't need to adapt as the world changes around us. Third thing would be bring people on the journey. Change is tough. Change is challenging. Collaborating is tough. It's challenging. But you've really got to bring people on the journey. And sometimes people get a concept or an idea an opportunity instantly. Some people, it can take a long time. So for our community, you've got to remember that people are learning and adapting and feeling things in different ways. So. Be cognizant of that and give people time to catch up because some people, they will always get there. They just need a bit of time. And then lastly, we talked about resilience. What is resilience? Get up out of bed and do it all again. Be hopeful. As an optimist, I think the future is and can be bright. It's going to take hard work. It's going to take a mind shift, but we should be hopeful because we're pretty smart as a race. And if we point ourselves in the right direction, I'm sure the future will be hopeful. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you.
0: It was really interesting to hear from Michael about resilience as the skill to get up every day and cope with challenges, not to mention his understanding of AI being a tool to enhance human lives. Professor Mark Burry talked about human-AI collaboration in the design practice as well in episode 42. You can find out more about Michael online, all the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Michael's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes and leave some feedback. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the Future for Cities podcast?